Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One interesting study looked at 42,000 men, 48,000 women, followed them for eight years. Those who had the highest level of uric acid had a 16% increased risk of all-cause mortality. Cardiovascular mortality, 38%. Why might that be? Let's say that diet is one of the biggest players and I think perhaps the most important. Um, So love means lower uric values, and it's the diet that we constructed that can be um, used as a lens through which you could look at your dietary preferences or your dietary dogma, if you will, whether it's keto, vegan, paleo, all of those diets and others uh, can be adapted to be more conducive to lowering your uric acid values. Uh, It means, as things that we've talked about, being very cognizant of purines, of alcohol, specific types of alcohol. And certainly, when you recognize that 70% of the manufactured foods in America today, in other words, if it has a barcode and it's in the grocery store, it has added sweetener, 70% do. And by and large, that comes from high fructose, there's the villain, Mm. uh, corn syrup that we subsidize to the tune of $500 billion a year. So... um, it's time to call that out. Uh, uh, I wrote a, an op-ed, it was an open letter to Pro- uh, President Biden, uh, February 21st of this year with Dr. Casey Means, uh, saying that you know these um, uh, nutrition recommendations that last for five years for the United States that are put out uh, by uh, the USDA allow, uh, indicate that 10% of our daily calories coming from sugar is okay, I wouldn't say there's no science that would support that, but 99% of the science uh, that was provided to the review committee for that dogma or that doctrine said that's way too much, that 6% should come or less from sugar. So our hope was that we could get some new language that would rewrite, you know, that... uh, that five-year recommendation, but... How many people do you think steer by the recommendation? A lot. Really? Oh, my gosh. Like, people actually Schools, pick up the box and they the start military. No, no, no. I'm talking about in terms of uh, government influence at the military it. and schools and federal uh, uh, food programs. They say 10%. They, you know, then they're... Therefore, wow. these foods that are manufactured, that have all this added sugar, fair game. Oof. That's... And what does that do? It creates the very illnesses that are bankrupting our healthcare system. Mm. So that don't make no sense to me. So uh, I'm guessing that that hasn't been adopted, that we're still at 10%. Um, So we've got sugar hiding everywhere. What are things that are high in purines that we should be paying attention to? Um, Like one, one thing I definitely want to talk about is red meat. Um, but where else are we going to find, like, if we know that DNA and RNA is in everything, then I, I don't even understand, to be honest, how some things are higher or lower. 
but it has to do with the cellularity and the concentration. The more cells it has, as opposed to other things. Give me a dense cellular one. Dense a, cellular one would be a, a, like a small fish, like a sardine or an anchovy. Is more really than dense, lots of apple? cells. Uh, well, let's just stay with it, uh, meat or animal Perfect. product for one second. We'll get yep. to that in a second. Uh, as opposed to chicken or really, uh, yeah. just the space between just the, the cells is the different. The space between it's that density. It's the uh, the real what? cellularity of uh, organ meat, for example, liver and kidney, huh. very high in purines. So they will uh, they're directly involved in their metabolism breakdown of the DNA and RNA, then to make uh, uric acid. But it doesn't necessarily mean as we segue to fruits and vegetables, that all foods that are high in purines are going to raise uric acid. So that's a bit of a disconnect that we finally have massaged into being meaningful. Because for years, well, for years it was foods high in purines, if you have gout, stay away from them. Mm. Because we know purines make uric acid. We know high in uric acid is the cause of gout. Well, what, what is gout? So gout is the extracellular crystallization of uric acid, where uric acid is so high that it finally precipitates out. It's like um, making rock candy. Have you ever made rock candy in the day? All right, well, how you make rock rock candy candy, is um, you have a solution of sugar and you heat it. And because it's hot, you can dilute more sugar. And then as it cools, if you have a thread in there, it'll crystallize on the thread and you pull it out and you've got rock candy. I mean, you're eating sugar. There's nothing else there, right? Anyway, so things precipitate out when their concentration is really high. I've seen it like on people's elbows and stuff. It's toes. Crazy. And it crystallized. Why it picks the great Does toe, who knows? Does it break through the skin? Can. They oh. can open up and be hugely painful. And in fact, you know, we humans are not the only animals at risk for that. Other ha- animals that have high uric acid, like reptiles and birds, uh, T-Rex, uh, Sue the T-Rex had uh, gout in her fossilized uh, skeleton. But wait, in, in such a natural environment, how are they ending up getting gout? They're just eating things that are too, they're eating other lizards and they're just too high in, in... Who can say? I mean, I don't think we know exactly what T-Rex ate, but you know, it looks based upon teeth and short digestive tract that they ate meat. You know, they were these you know, prototypic carnivores and as such were at higher risk for gout. Hmm. Segways back to us as humans. So it doesn't mean that people who eat a lot of meat are necessarily going to get gout and may not even have a high uh, level of uric acid. But it takes us to a place, it really depends on the person, so therefore you want to check your uric acid. But here's... How do you check your uric acid? It's a blood test. and Over the counter? Yes. That's the good news. But most people have already had their uric acid checked. It's part of your annual blood test. And you could call your doctor and say, what's my uric acid? And she or he would say, well, it's either normal or not. If it's above seven, it's abnormal. It's out of the normal range. And below seven, you're in the clear. But understand, Tom, this is only in the context of gout, Mm. not metabolic health. So for metabolic health, we want it not in the normal range, in the optimal health. Which is? Range. 5.5 5.5 or lower. Okay. That's what the research indicates uh, is the cutoff uh, in terms of cardiometabolic issues. So having higher uric acid levels 
One interesting study published in 2009 looked at 42,000 men, 48,000 women, followed them for eight years. Those who had the highest level of uric acid had a 16% increased risk of all-cause mortality, becoming a dead person for any reason whatsoever. That's what the term means. Cardiovascular mortality, 38%. Why might that be? We talked about nitric oxide. We talked about blood flow. We talked about inflammation of the arteries, for example. Uh, Stroke risk, death from stroke, 35% increased risk. And here's an interesting part of that study, I thought, uh, for people looking at their values. For every point of uric acid elevation over 7, all-cause mortality increased 8 to 13%. Oh, God. So at 8, at 9, at 10, you know, you see people with a uric acid level of 11. Ooh. That's a big, big study. The other thing the study showed, which I thought was really quite interesting, they concluded that one-fourth of all uh, type 2 diabetes was a consequence of elevated uric acid. What? Okay, so hold on. Let's, <laughs> the, the cause thing, I want to really put a fine point on that. Sure. So uh, the cause of type 2 diabetes is the overconsumption of sugar, I would assume, which leads to elevation in uric acid. Not that the elevation of uric acid is the cause of type type 2 diabetes. Or are you saying, no, 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 that's exactly what's happening. If you overconsume the sugar, but it was handled appropriately and I could artificially depress your uric acid, you actually wouldn't end up with type 2 diabetes. That study has actually been done in both rodents and in humans. And here's how the study worked. Uh, Dr. Richard Johnson, University of Colorado, uh, who I dedicated the book to, Uh, did research with laboratory um, uh, animals, rats. If you want to make them diabetic and hypertensive, you give them fructose. You put fructose in their drinking water. And if you leave them alone, they develop these problems and they gain weight. If you give them a drug, which is a gout drug called allopurinol, they still drink the fructose, but now you've done what? You've blocked uric acid production. Mm. They don't get these metabolic... Where does it go? Do they urinate it out? Uh, it actually is metabolized into other things. You know, normally, if we have a functioning uricase enzyme, we will then metabolize uric acid into another product called allantoin. But in this case, they, uh, it simply gets recycled and is used as a building block for other things, even mm-hmm. um, DNA and RNA, so it can, re- it can go into those, those pools. He did the study in humans as well. He gave them high fructose diet, and gave them this medication called allopurinol, which blocks uh, uric acid production, and lo and behold, had the same effect. So my point is that it's, that's the, the study that you wanted to know, because you're saying, I'm eating a lot of fructose. If I don't make uric acid, uh, I'm good. Now, I'm not suggesting, therefore, eat a lot of fructose. And I'll tell you something even more exciting. The first enzyme in the metabolism of fructose is called fructokinase. And that takes it ultimately down to uric acid. Uric acid feeds back and you would think would then would shut off fructokinase. It actually enhances fructokinase activity. This becomes a feed-forward process, which is what you'd want if you're going to get ready to starve. Mm. There are now uh, drug... There's one drug company that is working on a drug to block 
fructokinase, so we don't metabolize fructose. Where it goes is anyone's guess, but it's not going to go on to form uric acid, so that's going to be, could be a powerful tool in, in terms of obesity. So let me finish one other thought, and that is, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that people then take a gout drug, but I will say that there are uh, several um, bioflavonoids that act in a similar way to inhibit the uh, final step enzyme for the production of uric acid. For example, quercetin. Quercetin works just like allopurinol. Um, uh, luteolin is another bioflavonoid that works uh, as well as, in one study, allopurinol to block uric acid production. Mm. So, um, to get back to an earlier question then, so you follow your uric acid at home with a home monitor that you can buy on Amazon, much as you might follow your own blood sugar. I did not expect that answer about, I honestly thought you misspoke in terms of causation of type oh, 2 diabetes. Oh, it is causation because it was a survival mechanism. We wanted, we needed to become diabetic. What? We had to become diabetic to raise our blood sugar to power the brain. So insulin resistance was Why, a good hold on, hold on, hold thing. On. Why would that need to be true? If we can pull the energy out of our fat stores, use it even as ketones, the brain can metabolize ketones. I know it prefers glucose, but why would we have to? Because it seems so transient. We can't store it in the bloodstream long enough for that to be meaningful, right? I mean, isn't that the whole idea behind fat storage is it's a much more stable long-term It is, long-term but you know, you have to consider that these are not animals that are getting fat. Mm-hmm. They're just getting a little bit fatter than the neighbor who doesn't have that genetic issue to have right. the uricase. So it's not like these primate, uh, you know, our primate ancestors were getting fat and laying around with big rolls of fat. They just had a tiny bit more fat. So their ability to tap into that fat source and and then create ketone bodies to power their brains was something they had, but only as long as they had the fat reserves. Ultimately, they would need the ability to also provide glucose, at least in the short run, uh, to their brains by virtue of being a little bit insulin resistant. So let me, let me Not say full it. on diabetic, yeah. but at least a little bit more insulin resistant to raise that blood sugar to power that brain. Okay, so let me say it in a different way. Mm-hmm. That... Every year in winter, we had a cycle get triggered where we would become slightly diabetic, meaning that our body made it harder. Uric acid made it harder for the normal mechanisms to pull the blood sugar out of the bloodstream and store it away. Exactly. Which meant that it was available in circulating supply. We ran hot, if you will of just there was slightly elevated levels of sugar in our blood and it becomes sort of a a second storage location. In fact, is it the only storage location for sugar? You can store some in your liver. Right. You can store some in your muscles, but it doesn't come back out into circulating supply, right? And you could store some in your kidney. Interesting, that one you mentioned earlier, but I'd never heard that before. Yes. So we get all these sort of little nooks and crannies where we are now storing sugar for that period of the year. And then presumably we would come back out of that as we got out of the fruit season, we made it through the winter, and now things would theoretically normalize. That's right, but remember uh, that uh, we can, with that blood sugar, we can then trigger the 
manufacturing, again, of fructose. Even though we haven't consumed fructose, we can manufacture it. From fat or from, are we gonna have to break down muscle? We, from sugar, from glucose itself. I think that what that fructose is doing is in keeping this whole cascade alive, where we're, it's not just making fat, but locking it up, storing it, keeping it, you know, guarding it. It's precious because that's, at the end of the day, that's our last fuel source. You know, you're gonna go through your glycogen ultimately if you have no food whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The other thing, interestingly, is as we metabolize fat, as any animal metabolizes fat, we make water. So this is a powerful hedge against dehydration as well. We make one gram of water for every gram of fat that we metabolize. It's, you know, it's a pretty interesting uh, concept that it's a, it's a hedge against dehydration as well. I mean, you know, whales don't drink water. They make their own water from the fat. That's why they're so, one of the reasons they're so fat. You know, and animals that live in the desert, when there is fruit available, they'll eat that fruit, make fat as a storage depot from which their bodies will make water. Whoa. This is far more interesting than I would have thought. It's it's a really fascinating mechanism. I've never heard anybody talk about this before. Um, Okay, I want to talk about red meat. So I eat a lot of red meat. I've never tested my uric acid levels, so I'll be very curious to get one of these tests. I'm going to send you one. That would be amazing. I will send you one. And I ask because... I feel amazing. And I, though, don't know if I'm killing myself slowly. So I, every time I go to like get off of red meat and eat higher uh, vegetable diet, because I do eat vegetables, um, I don't feel as good. And I could just be doing it poorly. I'm fully um, open to that. But I am super curious, is it all red meat? Why do we have to worry about red meat? Like, what's the the knock-on effect as it relates to... Well, there are many things to talk about as it relates to eating red meat that you've had other people talk about, and I I want to focus on in the context of uric acid. I eat red meat myself, uh, and you want to be sure you're eating quality meat. uh, And if you eat poultry, and certainly if you eat fish. Uh, But that said, it's not uh, beyond the quality, then it would be a quantity issue. Now, you may, through your metabolism, uh, be able to tolerate more Uh, red meat or other uh, animal products, uh, but you would want to know your uric acid level. So Mm -hmm. it's as you would know how much you could tolerate in terms of carbs by virtue of using your continuous glucose monitor. This is yet another biofeedback mechanism whereby you're going to understand how your diet is influencing your uric acid level by virtue of how much meat you consume. So yes, certain meats are worse than others, the organ meats, uh, the smaller fish, etc. And But it's beyond purines. I mean, there are other things to consider that you've already considered. That said, there are vegetables, certain vegetables that are fairly high in purines, like cruciferous vegetables, for example. But again, they are buffered by the fiber content, by the bioflavonoids. Like I mentioned, quercetin, red onions, really high in in quercetin. A great food, onions and the cruciferous, to help lower uric acid and the vitamin C part of that equation as well. So how how do those lower uric acid? Well, the vitamin C does so because it enhances uric acid excretion from the kidney. The quercetin 
and other bioflavonoids act like the uric acid lowering drug. They act like they the allopurinol, final enzyme. the final enzyme, uh, the xanthine oxidase, if you will, that is involved in creating the uric acid. Uh, and then again, the fiber in vegetables, if, because they will contain some fructose, slows the release of that fructose into your body. So you don't get like you would get from drinking a glass of fruit juice. Mm. Bad idea. So one, in the book, you talk more than just about food. You talk about getting out into nature and things like that. So paint a picture for me of the ideal life. I know we're trying to match back to our genetics and what that looks like. Why does going outside matter? Um, What is the ideal diet? And I assume it's going to be different for everybody. And do we just steer by glucose and uric acid? Or is there some other No, I mean, there are a lot of things we look at in uh, trying to cultivate what is that perfect diet for Tom. And I think to embrace, embrace that notion is really very helpful. Um, the you know, one-size-fits-all just is, is really inappropriate. Mm. Your heritage is different. Uh, your preferences are different. There are some broad strokes. We know that manufactured foods, uh, foods that contain added sugars, etc., are things to be avoided. Uh, but you know the nuances that you could look at in terms of how is this playing out in my body, I think are really quite valuable. Hence the value of continuous glucose monitoring, of knowing your uric acid uh, levels, of you know looking at other parameters that, that might be influenced by not just that, but your other lifestyle interventions, by knowing how well, uh, how well and how long you are sleeping. These are all extremely valuable inputs uh, for every individual to know. And, and clearly... You know, what's going to be best for you will be somewhat different than for me. So for people that come out and say, you know, everybody's got to eat this particular way or it's your blood type or whatever it may be. I think to be fair uh, in this day and age, we know that people are different. But I will say that it's quite clear that 100 percent of humans alive today or who have ever lived have this genetic issue with the uricase enzyme cannot break down uric acid and therefore the uric acid levels of humans is four to five times higher than other mammals except for primates, Mm. number one. Uh, And number two, that uric acid levels are climbing in lockstep with fructose consumption. In the 1920s, average uric acid level in Americans was about 3.5. It's now 6. So we're seeing this happen as expected once you understand, you know, where the uric acid is coming from. Is there such thing as too low? It's a really good question. Uh, There is some suggestion that uric acid, because it might act as an antioxidant uh, to some degree, uh, would be threatening if it was really low. But I think when we see a correlation, uh, for example, uh, in elderly people with very, very low uric acids and risk for degenerative conditions, it's probably because uh, it's a, an effect, not the cause, meaning mm-hmm. they're already sick and uh, cachectic. They've lost muscle mass. And because they have no more muscle mass, they're not able to keep their uric acid levels up because they're not breaking down any more muscle, which would liberate the purines. So, you know, this is all about then looking at those dietary tweaks as your uric acid levels uh, are examined over time to keep your uric acid level in check. And the ultimate goal of the book is 
that missing link that so many people with borderline diabetes or frank diabetes, mild elevation of the blood sugar, or can't lose that last 20 pounds and are doing everything they possibly can. Darn it, I'm doing everything I can. There's got to be something else. This may be that something else, may be that missing link. And um, truthfully, uh, as we've described it, it's not going to be that hard to get your uric acid level back where it needs to be. And we're going to do it just by changing our diet. We're going to stop eating fructose. Yep. Um, and J- Japan uh, is leading the charge. They are intervening with patients who have metabolic conditions to lower their uric acid. America isn't doing that yet. They're targeting uric acid only mm-hmm. if you have gout. Um, the notion of what we call asymptomatic hyperuricemia means you have a very high uric acid, but you don't have gout, so you don't have any symptoms. Right. No, you're at great risk for death from cardiometabolic conditions. That's what the research is telling us. You have a dramatic increased risk for Alzheimer's and dementia in general. So they're kind of leading the charge to the extent that Japan is now producing no purine beer, beer that has zero purines to help you with your uric acid. They're way ahead on this. Yeah, they are. Well, you know, we in America tend to think we're leading the charge. And in so many areas, you know, renewable energy, so many areas we see when you look at what the rest of the world is doing, we can learn from, from the rest of the world. And as it relates to uric acid, which is a global problem, mm. uh, we see that other, even Turkey, I mean, other countries are really uh, moving ahead and recognizing that when you have this information, it is the harbinger for future metabolic issues. And it's predictive. High uric acid is predictive of hypertension, of insulin resistance, elevated blood sugar, therefore diabetes, inflammation, oxidative stress, all of those mechanisms that underlie the things that you don't want to get. Mm. So, you know, John Kennedy said that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. And, you know, that's the hope with, uh, it's not the end all, but it's, it's going to be a powerful addition to our toolbox. Yes, keeping blood sugar under control. Yes, getting adequate exercise, watching what you eat, controlling your stress, getting enough sleep, wearing a wearable device to look at your sleep. All these things are really important. This um, is now going to be looked at as a a strategic metabolic marker right there with blood sugar and blood pressure and and serum lipids. I think you're going to see uric acid uh, very soon uh, being on par with those. Is uric acid volatile? So when I think about wearing a continuous glucose monitor, the fun is that it's moving around, right? So if I have... Not as volatile as moment-to-moment blood sugar measurements, but it'll change within a day. And, you know, it'll go up. If you exercise in a way that you're not used to and therefore break down a lot of muscle fiber, that will transiently raise your uric acid level, as will fasting in the short run. Fasting will raise it. Will raise it, as will being in deep ketosis. Why Why would it it? raise it? Because you're catabolic, you're breaking down your tissue. So fasting, theoretically, is supposed to be muscle sparing. You even mentioned that in the book. Right. So if it's muscle sparing, is it the release of fat? Well, it is mostly in when you get to the point that you start breaking down muscle. So it's mostly the breaking down of uh, muscle, but also uh, to some degree other cellular components that will liberate 
the, the, the nucleus of the cell therefore spill out the nucleic acids, the DNA and the RNA that will be broken down into purines. Mm. Thing to think about in terms of fasting is even if it's an intermittent fast uh, that you will transiently raise your uric acid level, when it's done, you're net positive uh, in a better place. In other words, so uric I acid intermittent is slightly fast better. 365 days a year. In terms of time-restricted eating? Yes. Okay. Uh, there's not a huge amount of data. The studies look at uh, more of the people who will fast for a day or two or three or even longer. But uh, that ultimately, the time-restricted eating, is so beneficial for your metabolism that we included a chapter in the book on that notion. I mean, uh, we've known that for a couple of years, and Dr. Satsun Panda uh, even recently has indicated that this time-restricted eating is one of the most powerful things we can do to improve our metabolism. So mm. uh, we're all in on that. We talk about continuous glucose monitoring as well. Um, it's all about gaining this information. And then when you have it, having somebody tell you, okay, what should I do with this information? On staff, we have a vegan, and I once watched him cane an entire package of blackberries. And as he was doing it, I could feel my blood sugar rising. And I was like, there's no way this kid's going to die. Like, he is, he's too good at his job for me to let him die. So I'm like, you have to go get your levels checked. And he did, and they fall within what I would consider normal ranges. So I want to know if I'm delusional on that, if there just is that much genetic variability, because that would have spiked. I know because I take my blood sugar levels quite frequently, that would have spiked me to over 100. For sure, it may have pushed me closer to like 120. To have, you can't imagine how many blackberries he ate. Um, but his, his H, um, A1C level was 5.1 and he eats like that all the time. So well, three things come to mind. First, I, I want it not to be missed that our time together may have compelled you to engage in aerobic exercise. That that's great. I mean, that is huge. And, uh, you know, what compelled me was the science, the data, my personal risk for Alzheimer's having lost my father to that disease and then just understanding how pervasive and preventable the situation is. But uh, if, if you've changed your exercise routine based upon our time together, then I'm grateful that I came out here. That's great. Next point. Uh, the ideal uh, being in the normal range. Uh, you brought up that uh, term. And uh, I, I just really recoil at the notion of a normal range. Because normal really, uh, by definition, is average. It's you know, whatever the number is, a thousand uh, samples and then one standard deviation on either side, the normal range. And that doesn't work uh, in terms of my messaging. I want optimal. So a normal range of vitamin D between 30 and 100. So uh, a patient will say, well, my level's in the normal range, doc. I'm at 31. Uh, there's a term for that. It's, means it means it is, that sucks. <laughs> Not that I use it that often, but it really does. We need optimal. Well, then, you know, I... Good enough, normal range is not where we are. We want tip-top. And so as it relates to hemoglobin A1c, tempering my next commentary with the notion of the U-shaped curve, I would say a range would be between, let's say, uh, 5 to maybe about 5.3, 5.4. Now, to get to your third point of your uh, friend who's eating a lot of berries, first of all, uh, it's a lot of sugar. Uh, it's uh, a lot of fruit sugar mm -hmm. called fructose, which has uh, almost no effect on uh, insulin, as you know. Uh, there is glucose in there, and ultimately, uh, he will, to some degree, 
glycate. He'll bind his blood sugar to protein, in the case of hemoglobin A1C, hemoglobin, and ultimately will increase that activity and it'll be measurable. But uh, you say he does it all the time. Uh, he's eating whole fruit with fiber to help offset the blood sugar spike. So I think you have to look at many things in terms of looking at an N of one. What did his A1C turn out to be based upon what you've observed? There are a lot of variables here. We don't know his, uh, what his microbiome looks like, for example. Mm. Uh, I think uh, a vegan diet can be a very salubrious approach, however, with certain caveats. You're not going to have great sources of vitamin D, B12, uh, fat. You know, a lot of vegans don't get enough dietary fat, and it's a huge, huge issue. Yeah, it's interesting. When I heard this story, I was like, whoa, that you, ha- you did a fecal matter transplant um, with a child that was suffering from pronounced autism. I, while I have certainly heard the through line of, hey, C-sections lead to a microbiome that's wildly disrupted, which increases the potential of somebody um, developing autism, I certainly had never heard of using a fecal metal transplant to reduce some of the symptoms of that. Um, one, walk us through that story, which I think is utterly fascinating. And two, I'd love to hear what the pushback is on that, where you think fecal matter transplants are in terms of efficacy, in terms of safety. Um, and I'll say that knowing that, or you should know that I'm sitting here waiting for the answer because my wife has struggled profoundly with um, antibiotic-induced microbiome disruption. And if I thought that that was going to work, I would do it immediately, but I'm worried about this. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Safety. Well, let's address the safety first. Uh, I think with a properly screened donor, uh, that it is negligible. I mean, it is the treatment of choice. Uh, being carried out at more than uh, 100 hospitals in America today 
for an, another disruption of the bowel flora called Clostridium difficile or mm. C. diff. Uh, the standard of care treatment using antibiotics is, has an efficacy of approximately 28%. FMT, fecal microbial transplant, has an efficacy uh, without recurrence north of 96%. Whoa! Think about it. I mean, the, the, the reason that people get C. diff in the first place is from uh, antibiotic exposure mm. frequently. Other drugs can do it as well. And they're treating that. The mainstream approach is to treat it with further antibiotics. Mm-hmm. You talk about tr- fighting fire with fire. But FMT now has really become a national, uh, 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 well-accepted approach to treating uh, C. diff. So I, I wouldn't be concerned in the least with respect to uh, safety of that procedure provided the donor is screened. So a woman arrived in my office with her uh, child, and um, I observed him uh, that he couldn't make eye contact, and he was repetitive motion, you know, very characteristic autistic child. And I asked her, how did you come to see me today? And I think, as I recall, she was from um, Mississippi, and she, she said, you know, I need to tell you the story how it all happened. She was in the parking lot of a grocery store and she couldn't get her child out of the car. And next to her was parked uh, a gentleman in a truck and he apparently apologized to her and said uh, that he didn't mean to get, uh, in, uh, get involved in this, but maybe you ought to take him down to Florida to see me of all. You know, and, uh, and she asked him why and apparently I'd helped somebody in his family. So she comes to see me with her son and it was right then that I was deeply immersed in the literature that was revealing that these kids have a profound disruption of their gut bacteria. I mean, it's almost like an autism fingerprint. And this was many years, several years ago, that we see very powerful correlations between these uh, patterns of gut bacteria and the manifestation of autism, that we see children who are born by C-section, you alluded to that earlier, have an increased risk of autism, and that C-sections disrupt their microbiome. One researcher, clinician, uh, actually, uh, Dr. Feingold, uh, actually was treating uh, autistic children using vancomycin to help, an antibiotic, to reestablish some balance, and was getting good results. So I said, uh, let's at least start with some probiotic enemas. I instructed her how to give her child uh, probiotics from the health food store, putting him in an enema and administering them. He improved. He uh, doesn't sound like a big deal, but he was able to tie his shoes for the first time in his life. And he was able to spend the night out at a friend's house. Hmm. I mean, those are major landmarks. They don't seem like much, but they were. As we continued uh, to work with him, he plateaued, uh, maintained his improvements, but it was not continuing uh, to get where she wanted. And I said, well, we ought to consider fecal microbial transplant. What is that? Identifying a healthy donor, taking the fecal material, and transplanting it into your son's colon. She identified a uh, healthy 12-year-old girl, and I got on the phone with her, and I said, I know it sounds really strange, uh, and it's way out there, but we just need to do this. And she said, if it'll help him, I'm in. Wow. And she did, and he began FMTs. His mother did them at home. And um, I was getting ready to give a talk in Germany. His mother sent me a link to a video 
of this kid presenting, um, presenting a uh, book report at school on Benjamin Franklin. And it, I, I got like that, getting ready to give my lecture, like mm-hmm. I'm getting right now. It took the, the wind out of my sails. I just couldn't believe it. And he's now in regular school at the, uh, in the wow. top 10% of his class. He was always bright, but he had this inflammation in the way of his cognitive performance. You know, it's like listening to a FM radio station in a lightning storm. It was always there. Mm. So, um, you know, that was one of the uh, things that we did that was certainly disruptive and eccentric. Wow. Um, since then, the University of Arizona did an interventional trial uh, on 20 autistic children, demonstrated profound improvement in these kids where nothing has helped them ever uh, in collaboration with researchers from Harvard, validating the notion of fecal microbial transplant as a treatment for autism. We know that we can measure the permeability of the gut by looking at levels of something called LPS, lipopolysaccharide. It's a chemical that enshrouds the gut, many of the gut bacteria. If the gut lining is leaky, for whatever reason, typically because of disruption of the gut microbiome, mm. then we can measure that LPS in the bloodstream where it doesn't belong. We see dramatic elevations of this LPS, meaning inflammation and uh, breakdown of the gut lining in Alzheimer's, autism, major depression, and even Lou Gehrig's disease. My point is that we focus on the brain when there's a heck of a lot going on in the gut that we're just beginning to unravel. The beginning of our time together, you challenged me. You said, well, what does the future look like? And really, as we understand this relationship between the gut and the brain, we've, got, we've, we've moved to a new stadium mm-hmm. and there are new rules written. Because as a neurologist, I have had traditionally very few tools in the toolbox. It was very much an adios, diagnose and adios situation. It doesn't really help anybody to go to the neurologist's office and he or she comes up with a very exotic name or something not as exotic like Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a word that has incredible um, gravitas in a negative way when family members hear that. Mm-hmm. And we have no treatment and yet it's preventable. And... Um, It's like John Kennedy said in his inauguration, that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. And, you know, that really has been, you know, a fundamental aphorism for me, that to prevent these situations for which we have no treatment is the call to action. And uh, there's no doubt uh, that to a significant degree, this epidemic is preventable. And that's the message that we want to shout out because um, we are um, inculcated with the mentality that we should live our lives however we choose and come what may, there'll be a treatment, right? Eat crap and we'll give you a diabetes pill to get Mm -hmm. your A1C below seven. (laughs) What kind of goal is that? Uh, But the reality is treating your diabetes to lower your blood sugar has uh, other uh, downstream effects that may not be good. Lowering your cholesterol level with a statin drug may not be the best thing to do. And you're Go deeper on that. I've heard you talk about that, statin's effect on um, insulin receptors, um, which was what put it on my radar that there are potentially other issues 
or other things that insulin is doing, because I always just thought of it as the, you know, taking the blood sugar out and putting it in the cell. Or let me see if I can connect those two, the notion of diabetes and, and statin drugs, for mm-hmm. example, and why I'm really um, so di- seemingly dialed in on diabetes, because if you become a type 2 diabetic, which is by and large a choice, you have quadrupled your risk for Alzheimer's. Did I say a disease for which there is no treatment? Yeah. So that's why you don't want to become a type 2 diabetic. Mm. In the Journal of the American Medical Association in uh, 2012 was the publication of a study called the Women's, uh, uh, Women's Collaborative Study. Uh, and it involved 150,000 women. And it demonstrated that those women taking a statin drug had an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 71%. In men, according to a more recent study, 2015, journal is Diabetologia, their risk is increased about 46%. Taking a statin drug that's ostensibly uh, the good thing to do for your heart Mm. is actually associated with a significant increased risk for another situation for which, guess what? We've got another pill for you. So now you're on your statin and we're going to add in your diabetes pills. Uh, So... This is diabetes that, did I say, quadruples your risk for Alzheimer's, Mm. a disease for which there is no treatment. So we connect these dots. And this is the information that people need to know before they capriciously uh, acquiesce to taking that drug because my doctor said my cholesterol level is too high. And truthfully, I mean, I think we all well understand that it is a, um, a pathway of this cholesterol number gets me to write that prescription for this patient. And I'll explain that, well, high cholesterol is going to give you a massive heart attack. Uh, well, that isn't true, uh, that at least 50% of myocardial infarctions in America today occur in people with normal, so-called normal cholesterol levels. Mm. Beyond that, we have this idea of what is called the statin brain, where taking a statin drug is associated with cognitive issues, memory issues, uh, and this is called out on the, the, the bottle of medicine, mm. that this drug can affect memory. Why so? Well, your brain loves cholesterol. It's a very important fat as a lining of your brain cells. It acts as a brain antioxidant. And equally important is the notion that we talked about vitamin D and how critically important that is in your entire body. Mm. That there are more than 900 receptors in your body for vitamin D. That's how pervasive its actions are. And most of those are in the brain. Where does it come from, vitamin D? Oh, it comes from the sun. The sunlight shining on your naked body changes a chemical into vitamin D. Mm. What is the chemical? It's cholesterol. I actually did not know that. Well, cholesterol is from which we make vitamin D, as it is from which we make testosterone and progesterone and estrogen and cortisol. So this vilification of cholesterol is very much off base. But you've got to give somebody credit. It sure paved the way for the notion that it's bad and that if you eat eggs, your children will be born naked or some horrible thing will happen and that we should lower cholesterol to incredibly low levels. The lower, the better. So the notion of the U-shaped curve has yet to find its way to that level of pharmacology, mm. uh, understanding that we need our cholesterol, we love our cholesterol. The issue 
that relates to risk for coronary artery disease is unrelated to cholesterol. Cholesterol shows up when the coronary arteries are inflamed. It shows up to heal the coronary arteries. Mm. It's why when a person dies of a heart attack and you section their coronary arteries and you look at it under the microscope, you'll see cholesterol is there. It's trying to heal this inflammation. It's like blaming the firemen because they're on scene, blaming the firemen because they're there at the fire. Mm. It doesn't work that way. It has a lot to do with um, not the number of LDL, its value, but whether it's been damaged or not, oxidized or not, or bound to sugar. How do you check that? You have your doctor check a glycated uh, LDL or oxidized LDL. And maybe your doctor's going to go, well, I'm not sure uh, I've heard of that or that our lab will do, will do that, in which case you need to move on. Because mm. that's what is very clearly uh, correlated to risk for coronary artery disease. The oxidized level of LDL, which is directly related to blood sugar. We're back where we started. Mm. Yeah, which I don't think in this interview we've um, really put our finger on the, what I'm sure most people know, but I think it wor- is worth saying, what are the lifestyle choices that are causing this cascade of essentially inflammation? Mostly food. And that should be empowering, meaning you can break the cycle. Mm. So uh, inflammation is what Alzheimer's is. Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, autism, diabetes, cancer, these are inflammatory diseases. Uh, the brain in the Alzheimer's patient is virtually on fire with inflammation. The word comes from the Latin inflammare, meaning fire, in, inflamed. Uh, so our lifestyle choices by having higher levels of blood sugar bind to our proteins called glycation. That's what A1C measures. When we bind sugar, because it's always elevated, to our proteins, that challenges our immune system, and the immune system says something's going on here, and that increases the production of these chemicals called the cytokines that mediate inflammation. There's a very interesting uh, study uh, that was published in the journal Neurology uh, back in 2014, and this is a study that looked at a group of individuals and uh, a couple, several decades ago, and did a simple blood test measuring inflammatory markers. It followed these individuals for 24 years. And it found that those individuals who 24 years ago had the highest level of inflammation in terms of their blood markers had a dramatic decrease in the size of their brains and at the time they came back to get reevaluated had poor memory function. We know that there uh, is a very powerful correlation between markers of inflammation in the blood and Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear that uh, we've got to do everything we can to reduce inflammation. And that brings us back to the gut. Because the lining of the gut, that one cell uh, lining that separates stuff in the gut from the rest of your body, is the gatekeeper basically for inflammation in your body. Whenever we threaten the gut lining and that chemical LPS and other things gets in and challenges our immune system, We amp up inflammation, and that sets the stage for every bad chronic disease that you don't want to get. And when the World Health Organization is now telling us that chronic inflammatory degenerative conditions are the number one cause of death on planet Earth, we've got to pay attention to that metric because it's 
something over which we have control based upon our lifestyle choices, mm -hmm. like the foods we eat. We want to eat much more primitively, much more locally, and, and as such, reduce inflammation. You wrote an article when you were 16, or a letter to the editor in the paper, I guess is a more accurate way of saying it. I don't know if you remember this, but came across it in my research, and it basically said, speaking of you know, Western lifestyle, um, it basically said, uh, we're all sort of running this experiment, and we're each contributing to um, seeing whose lungs can evolve to handle pollution, and... I don't think that spending a Sunday at the beach or going on a week trip to the mountains is going to be enough and basically intimating that our current lifestyle is so far removed from what we've evolved to handle that there's a, just a fundamental problem. And before we started rolling, you and I were talking about um, the, your notion of brainwash, the new book that you're working on. And I just want to hear a little bit about that, about, you know, what are some of the things that are happening um, from a, a lifestyle perspective at a broader um, level than what we've just been talking about, you know, just what we eat, but what we're engaging with, um, you know, negativity and how that influences the brain and, you know, the way that media is presented and the kinds of influences that they're having, like, what are you finding as you look more deeply at that? I think that uh, there is a lot of uh, traction of the, the paleo ideology. But at its core, the notion of paleo is one that says, let's get back to sending the right signals to our genome, which is, hasn't changed in, let's say, 70,000 years, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gets, gets back to our original conversation when we started today about how our lifestyle choices are interpreted by our genome, how our food beyond the macronutrient content is actually information, sending up-to-date signals as to our environment, to our genome, so that our genome can then in kind respond uh, to maintain our health by responding to the signals to, that it receives. Our evolution cannot keep up with the environment to which we are exposed and the environment to which we choose to expose ourselves. So. The idea that um, we can change that by going back and trying to think about what it was that our ancestors' lifestyles must have been like and therefore cause our genome to express genes for longevity, um, reduction of inflammation, in, uh, stabilization of immunity uh, is, I think, really very, very important. So I think that you know, this is really becoming an area of great interest uh, for a lot of people. It's, you know, instead of trying to patch up these problems, I think the idea of letting our genes keep us healthy mm. is really, um, it's, it's, it's kindness. It's really about, about reconnecting to that incredibly beautiful gift that we've received from all who have come before us. And it's very instructive to recognize that the genes of our gut bacteria are influencing our genome expression. Mm. That those little critters that live within us are moment to moment changing our gene expression. There's a very interesting piece of this puzzle that was just uh, solved for me last month in a journal, uh, Cell Host and Microbe. The researcher's name is Yun Teng, T-E-N-G from University of Louisville. And he gave us information about the idea that 
plant cells contain RNA. We know that. Who didn't know that? And that uh, they are able, when we digest plant cells, that microsomes that then are extruded from plant cells called exosomes that contain plant RNA work their way into our gut bacteria and change the expression of the genetic material of our gut bacteria. So food is running the show. Plant food is changing the expression of our bacteria uh, genome that leads to three important things as it relates to our gut bacteria. It changes their rates of multiplication. It changes the metabolic products that they produce, like vitamins and neurotransmitters. And it changes their location in the gut, hopefully closer to the gut lining so they can help us keep that intact. So that was a very intriguing couple of dots to connect. Therefore, our food is uh, changing our gene expression. And we should think about that. You know, we say when a woman is pregnant, she has to be careful because now she's eating for two. Mm. Or, well, Tom, you're eating for 100 trillion <laughs> right now. This morning b- before we came here, I was having breakfast at the hotel, and uh, the, the, the women next to me, um, one woman was, uh, had uh, skim milk in her coffee, because we don't want dietary don't fat, want fat yeah. and to which she put several uh, pink packets of sweetener, which the research shows is profoundly damaging to the microbiome, mm. associated with a profound increased risk of obesity in a French study of tens of thousands of, it was 70,000 women, and also dramatically increases your risk for avoiding sugar in the first place, type 2 diabetes. Her brain has been hijacked by media that would let us believe that this is the right choice. But that media doesn't have her health uh, at the core of their interest. Uh, what that media has, uh, it is their end up bottom line, right? And she is simply a pawn uh, on that chessboard being manipulated. That is the focus of this new work called uh, brain, Brainwash. We're trying to wash people's brain and push the reset button and really call out all the ways that day-to-day uh, our lifestyle choices are being manipulated. Uh, you know, learning that uh, all of our online uh, areas that we explore are being leveraged to create advertising that's appealing to us. That's I'm not telling you something that your audience isn't certainly aware of. But it has health consequences. It's not just that you happen to buy you know, uh, the latest pair of glasses or a shirt. It has to do with your health, re- like this woman this morning mm-hmm. choosing this artificial sweetener. And I will say that we had a premise for the book about calling out uh, how our brains are influenced. And beyond that, how reconnecting with nature, how dietary changes, how meditation, how various things can help undo what's been done. Mm-hmm. How we can harness this notion of neuroplasticity we talked about earlier, uh, by having higher levels of BDNF to then allow the good pathways to stick, allowing us to connect back to the prefrontal cortex and act in a more empathetic way, in a more compassionate way, in a way that recognizes that our decisions today are going to affect what happens tomorrow. Um, The notion that we can do that uh, is, is a heck of a gift that we need to raise awareness of, especially these days when impulsivity and narcissism seems to be, you know, the way things are done today. And mm. we've certainly got to pay attention to what, uh, what will tomorrow bring? How will our actions today 
affect ourselves uh, tomorrow and affect the world tomorrow. So um, the Dalai Lama said that if you want to be happy, practice compassion. And if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. Mm. So in a very real sense, what we choose to do rewires our brain and changes our thinking. What I'm saying is that we presuppose that our thoughts determine our actions. But in a very real sense, our actions determine our thoughts. Yeah, let that sink in. I was running one day and I was listening to a podcast from Peter Atiyah. Mm. And he interviewed a Dr. Richard Johnson, University of Colorado, and explored this topic that uric acid is a central player in our metabolic health. It's far more than you know, the dead-end metabolic product of fructose that has a role to play, again, in gout. And for me, uh, everything's about metabolism. Because when we're deranged in our metabolic lives, it sets the stage for all the bad things you don't want to get. Alzheimer's, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer. So this becomes a very powerful tool. And I couldn't... Really fast, what makes you think that all of those things are metabolic... They're born of metabolic disturbances. Well, they are. I mean, their, their underpinning is inflammation. And inflammation has its genesis in disturbed metabolism. So these are all inflammatory uh, conditions. We've talked about that before, that Alzheimer's is basically an inflammatory condition. Mm. That you know, people are now becoming aware of inflammation in the world of COVID, getting this thing called the, the cytokine storm, whereby suddenly inflammatory chemicals are produced in excess throughout the body and people have problems with their brains and their lungs, etc. But in the same force, in a lower level, acting over a longer period of time, could be, let's say, the cytokine drizzle and is equally as devastating to the body. So, And the this, cytokine drizzle is a response to eating pro-inflammatory foods? Not just eating pro-inflammatory foods, but anything... Uh, the answer is yes, but not just. Uh, mm. Anything that increases inflammation, not getting enough sleep, uh, engaged in stressful activities, a disturbed gut bacteria setting the state. That's a powerful source of inflammation in human physiology. Uh, leakiness of the gut lining, for example, dramatically amplifies inflammation. So a lot of roads lead to the realm of inflammation and set the stage for things like Alzheimer's and coronary artery disease. And because of that, it's uh, the reason that a monotherapy or a one-drug approach to Alzheimer's, for example, uh, is beyond myopic. It's never going to work when we have what Dr. Dale Bredesen has described as 36 possible inroads into why your brain isn't working with respect to Alzheimer's, uric acid now being one of those, mm. uh, that the idea of targeting one thing, this beta amyloid protein, you know, uh, we'll, we'll forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> so, all right, we hear about uric acid. What was like the key insight that made you go, whoa, there's really something here? Because you've moved super quickly into getting a book out. You said you wanted to make sure that this wasn't one of those things that languished for 20 years and, you know, took all that time to work its way into the medical establishment. What was the key insight that made you go, whoa, this is a real linchpin in the understanding of metabolic health? The urgency on my part, once I figured out how important it is, or realized how important it, it is, 
The urgency is that our metabolic health globally is in a terrible place. I mean, a third of American adults has hypertension. Mm. Uh, 10% of, of kids aged 12 to 18 has hypertension. That's crazy. It is. Uh, 50% of adult Americans will be obese by the year 2030. Not just overweight, but obese. So we are, you know, our life expectancy is declining. Is it? Uh, that, that it's actually declining. Oh, it's uh, declining dramatically before COVID. It began. So people say, well, because of COVID, people are dying earlier. Uh, and, you know, the truth of the matter is that this metabolic derangement bodes for a much worse outcome as it relates to COVID. Mm. They're so, tracking that? Like, yeah, there's that's, actually that's a study? been published. Yeah, you measure uric acid at admission, and it predicts to some degree who's going to end up in the ICU, who's going to end up on oh. a vent, and who's going to die. Now that we recognize uric acid and its role in disturbing metabolism, and its role in inflammation, and its role in increasing what is called oxidative stress, the damaging effects of free radicals, it was looked at. And lo and behold, look what they're finding. What is uric acid? Like, what, what is it? What triggers the unhealthy elevation? So uric acid is a very simple chemical and it is the end product of the metabolism in the human body uh, and the bodies of other animals of only three things, alcohol, uh, something called purines, which are the breakdown products of DNA and RNA, and by far and away, fructose. So to me, uh, we've known that fructose is a demon for a long, long time. And you, in 1970, it was published in the journal The Lancet that fructose is a player. It is a big player. And yet we were told that because fructose doesn't cause insulin to be secreted and doesn't need insulin uh, to be metabolized, therefore it was a safer sugar. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we recognize how industry uh, was able to manipulate that messaging and how- If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Oh, everybody fell for it. But if insulin really is like one of these high risk factors and fructose doesn't require insulin, why isn't it better? That is the, well, I'd say million dollar question. That's the $500 billion question. That's how much we subsidize the growth of corn to make high fructose corn syrup today with that as a premise that, look, it should be safe because it doesn't need insulin to be metabolized. Mm. It is a powerful threat as it relates to type 2 diabetes because it stimulates a couple of things. Number one is gluconeogenesis, the creation of glucose in your body, de novo, 
in the liver, and uric acid enhances that process, and it causes what is called insulin resistance, meaning that insulin doesn't work as well in your body through a number of mechanisms. So that's the dirty secret of fructose that the industry didn't want us to know about. Now it's been called out. So fructose can only be metabolized in the liver. Why? Uh, as it turns out, it can be metabolized in various other tissues in the body, even okay. including the brain. We learned about the liver, but even the kidney can metabolize a fructose. Wow. So uh, the, the story, you know, everyone, everything's been compartmentalized. But now we know that it's a lot, a lot bigger story. Can we know that glucose be... can become fructose. High glucose levels, especially when Will blood turn into can become fructose, fructose through, the use, uh, through the body's use of a, an enzyme called aldose reduct reductase. That is enhanced when serum sodium is higher. So higher levels of salt mm -hmm. leads the body to know that it is in, uh, it's getting ready for famine or water restriction. Make more salt, uh, it actually creates, we, we retain more salt and we make fructose out of glucose. Fructose is the signal then that prepares us for not having any food, which is really quite intriguing. So fructose found in nature, I would assume primarily in fruit. Right, so, fructose, fruit sugar, that's where it comes so from. So what is it about the natural appearance of fruit that warrants, because fruit's what, spring, right? Or summer? fall. It's fruits fall? Late summer. Wow, and that's what and happens when you live in L.A. Late summer and early uh, fall. That's okay. when it writes. So it's like, hey, Traditionally we're... for our ancestors. I mean, now you have fruit 360, right? Yeah, like I literally have no idea what's yeah, natural. So, but traditionally, it, it is the late summer and early fall when the wild blueberries would ripen and our proclivity to finding sweet things, mm. a survival mechanism deep in your brain and the brain of every human walking the planet makes us gravitate towards sweet. We consume fructose, and that triggers a powerful mechanism in our bodies to make fat, to store fat, to lock it up, to make more blood sugar, to power our brains, to raise our blood, our blood pressure. So these are powerful survival mechanisms that happened you know, probably 14 to 17 million years ago when, in the Middle Miocene period, uh, when the world cooled, and for our primate ancestors, that was a survival pressure. And those who had mutations in the genes that have to do with uric acid made more uric acid, which alerted their bodies to make more fat. Now, those are the only, only primates that survived. They pass it on to you and me and to every human, such that when we are exposed to fructose, it's telling our bodies, get ready for times of food scarcity. Mm. So the idea of um, higher blood sugar and insulin resistance and all those terrible metabolic things that we're doing our damnedest right now to target, those were wonderful adaptations for us for more than 99% of our time on this planet. Mm. What's happened is now we still have the old genome but we've challenged it with a new environment that is rich in fructose, that is more sedentary. We're not doing as much. We're not sleeping as well or, uh, restoratively, and, and therefore uric acid is increasing and worsening our metabolism and leading to this host of diseases that we talked about. What's your take on fruit itself? Like, is that to be avoided or? That's a million dollar question. So fruit is, a, is on the table. Because uh, of the fiber content? Fiber, 
bioflavonoids, and importantly, vitamin C. So vitamin C uh, dramatically helps with your excretion of uric acid. So you're net negative in terms of uric acid by eating an apple a day, by eating a couple of apples a day, a handful of grapes. Uh, and certain fruits are actually associated with lowering your uric acid, like tart cherries. Mm. Hence the O in the book cover. See the O? I do indeed. It's the falling cherry. Nicely done. <laughs> so, okay, so we're intaking all of this excess fructose. It used to be good for us. Now it's becoming a problem. Uh, the end of that metabolic train is uric acid. Uric acid used to be, or it has a role but not in the elevated levels that we're talking about now. Um, uric acid is in these elevated levels is causing inflammation. Is there anything else going on or is it simply sure. this cytokine drip? <clears throat> oh no, it's, there's a lot going on. And let's uh, double click on something I think is really interesting vis-a-vis -vis some news that happened today. One of the things that uric acid does, it inhibits nitric oxide. Now, not to be too technical, but we need nitric oxide for many reasons, two of which are, it allows blood vessels to open up, improving blood supply. Uh, when there's not enough nitric oxide, there's not enough blood supply. It also facilitates how insulin works to keep our blood sugar in check. And not having function of nitric oxide compromises blood supply and compromises how insulin works, so our blood sugar will go up. The reason I say that is there are drugs that increase nitric oxide. Uh, one of them is Viagra, as, in, as a matter of fact. There's a time and a place when you, a person might need, not you, a person might need uh, more blood supply for erectile dysfunction. Uh, and a study was published this morning showing that people who take men, who take Viagra, uh, uh, it's associated with a 70% reduction in risk for Alzheimer's. Can you imagine? And this is not the first study. More blood supply to the brain, also a reduction in the formation of what's called tau protein in the brain. But think about it. That might well explain why elevation of uric acid is associated with an 80% increased risk of dementia, a 55% increased risk of Alzheimer's specifically, and a 165% increased risk of vascular dementia. Because it's actually lowering our NO. It is lowering the functionality of nitric oxide. Okay, so and we have the nitric oxide in the system, but it's unable to do its thing because right. of the elevated presence of uric acid. And important, <clears throat> I think a lot of people get the nitric oxide blood supply uh, relationship, but the the the... Uh, tying nitric oxide into how insulin works is a relatively new idea. So, uh, you know, that's been demonstrated in animals and then in humans that, uh, you know, that's a, an important function that's compromised by uric acid. So, yes, we talked about inflammation, cytokine storm, cytokine dribble. This nitric oxide story is actually very important as well. And how does it interface with insulin? Because we need nitric oxide for two things. How insulin is able to get through the blood vessel into to then target the insulin receptor and then how it's able to bring blood sugar into the cell doing its job to help lower blood sugar so the function and you need the vasodilation to pull that you off. need the, that's how insulin makes its way through the blood vessel to get to the muscle and or liver cells to do its job in terms of the sequestration of blood sugar if you will for the formation of 
of glycogen. Okay, so that would predict then if the elevated levels of uric acid cause my vasculature to be too constricted, now I basically am leaving the glucose in my bloodstream. I'm probably then going to secrete more and more insulin, trying desperately to get it out because the mechanisms don't realize that right. this isn't a lack of insulin problem. This is a vasodilation problem. I'm too constricted. I can't get out. I can't reach the muscle cell. I can't reach the fat cells. Uh, that's really interesting. It's really interesting. It's a, it's a big problem because that leads to insulin resistance. Insulin doesn't do its job. And, you know, insulin resistance is devastating for the brain. Why? Well, the brain requires glucose, so we can understand from that perspective. But insulin is a powerful trophic hormone for the brain. It nurtures brain cells. If you want to grow brain cells in a in a petri dish, let's say, you nurture them with insulin, and that's how mm. they grow. So, you know, insulin has far more uh, important roles, you know, beyond just its role in regulating blood sugar. So, insulin permits the glucose receptors at the blood brain barrier uh, to allow uh, glucose to get into the brain to power brain cells, if mm. you will. So, it's a very big story. So, why might this be? Why would your, what would be the upside of having uric acid create insulin resistance and therefore cause blood sugar to go up? Why? Because when you're starving, it'll help power your brain. Because, you know, we're not the fastest, we're not the strongest, but we have a big brain in relation to our bodies. So that's been our ace in the hole. It's been our high card that we can play w during times of you know, either starvation or predation. Mm. So we need our brains to keep us uh, able to get food and to keep us from becoming food. And that's not a real concern these days, right? But in the day, we needed to make sure we didn't get eaten. One of the chapters in the book is called Survival of the Fattest. I assume this is what we're talking about. Yeah, and it's not like our primate ancestors were, got fat and we're, you know, we're lying around being fat. They just had a little bit, a little edge, that superpower, a little extra body fat so that, you know, for that extended period of time when there wasn't food, they would be the ones to survive. They were able to lay down that fat and survive because they had a mutation in this gene, what, the uricase genes. So they couldn't break down uric acid. Their uric acid levels would go up, trigger their fat production, and they would survive. Help me understand that mechanism in light of what we just walked through. So elevated uric acid, constriction of the blood vessels, the glucose stays in the system. How is it getting me to lay down the fat if the glucose molecule or the insulin molecule is having a hard time getting the glucose molecule into the cell? Other mechanisms. So we only covered two so far. The next would be oxidative stress. So elevated uric acid uh, profoundly increases what is called oxidative stress. When mitochondria in the cell uh, are exposed to higher levels of oxidative stress, they are less functional, and that triggers, that's one of those uh, stresses in the body that triggers fat production. And that becomes a really interesting story that we didn't cover specifically in the book, but <clears throat> I think it's fascinating nonetheless because it's similar, and that is, why do we as human beings not make vitamin C? Mm. I mean, you know that's a fact, we've you've talked about it before, and 
I, I think we have to talk about that because it's not just, well, it sucks to be human. We don't make vitamin C. You got to make sure you're not a limey. Or you eat enough lunch. You don't get scurvy so that your teeth don't fall out and your kids aren't born naked or whatever happens I when you have happens, scurvy, yeah. right? Well, I think it's interesting because um, this oxidative stress triggers fat production, which was a good thing. It's, again, fat production a good thing. Being coming a little fatter is a good thing. yes. In the through the lens of our history, mm. of being primates uh, or even hunter gatherers, and increasing oxidative stress by not having vitamin C would have been looked at, uh, looked upon as being a good thing through that lens again, and would also cause us to then seek out the fruit. Those who would seek out the fruit would survive, get enough vitamin C to survive during times of food scarcity. Okay, so now as we take this into a modern context. Um, we know that it served us for a while, but now we're getting, we have so much fructose coming into the diet. Our levels are going up so high. We're constricting the blood vessels. Going back to what you said about um, Viagra, like that just, that if that ends up holding, I mean, that's like a miracle drug. A 70% decrease in the likelihood of Alzheimer's is crazy. I would take a 5% decrease in Alzheimer's risk. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, getting your metabolic house in order is a powerful way to decrease mm -hmm. your Alzheimer's risk. We know that to be true. We know if you're a type 2 diabetic, you've quadrupled your risk for that disease, Alzheimer's, for which there is no medical treatment as you and I have this conversation right now. Despite the exciting news of several months ago of a new miracle drug that gets you know, that, that limits beta amyloid. Uh, what happened with that was really quite um, encouraging. You know, it was resoundly rejected by the neurology world and rightfully so, because it doesn't work. Mm. We don't have a drug to prevent that disease and yet we really understand where it's coming from. It's coming from disturbed metabolism. It's been said that Alzheimer's is not generally a genetic disease and I would until recently have agreed with that saying that, yeah, about 4% of Alzheimer's have familial type Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. You know, there are populations around the world, South America, for example, where it runs quite strongly in families. I would tell you now that it's probably 100% genetic, as is type 2 diabetes. I would say it's 100% genetic. And you're looking at me saying, where are you going to go yeah. with this? And let me, go, let, me, let me play it out. Because as I've mentioned earlier, what we're seeing now are these metabolic derangements that underlie these diseases that represent a disconnect between evolution and environment. So we have this genome that's coding for our survival in the context of a different environment. Now that we're challenging that genome with a new set of circumstances, a new context, looking at it through a different lens, if you will, uh, it's expressing genes that are paving the way for our metabolic decline and setting the stage for the very things we don't want to get. Mm. And I have to tell you, that language is something that came to me, I think, the night before last as I was just lying in bed thinking about this stuff, that it is absolutely a genetic uh, disease in that context of the mismatch. And we're living then with physiology and, and a body, a machine uh, that is uh, you know, mismatched with our current environment. It's outdated machinery. 
And I, I realized before I wrote Drop Acid that I had written about that topic a half a century ago. And I wrote a, a, an op-ed in the Miami Herald about what about us living today with the outdated machinery that is more suited to the environment of our ancestors. And uh, I, I saved it. I was 16 years old when I wrote that article. I saved it. I put it in the book. And um, that's the issue, is that you know, it's the foundation of the paleo movement. Let's try to recapitulate the environment of our, of our ancestors, both uh, well, just in terms of other activities, sleep and exercise, physical activity, stress, but mostly the foods that we eat. Mm. If we can emulate what our, our genome expects, we'll have better health. We said five years ago, uh, maybe you should sn- uh, stop eating gluten and cut back on your carbs and eat more, dare I say, fat. And boy, did people's feathers get ruffled with mm. that. So. Uh, I found that it felt good to be disruptive and challenge the status quo. Uh, Ronald Reagan said that status quo is a Latin term for the mess we're in. And I think that what I foresee is that we are going to see a virtual explosion in the ability to harness big data and moving forward manipulate that data uh, using artificial intelligence to really be far more specific about making recommendations for Tom. What do you need based upon who you are? What does your genome look like? What does your microbiome look like? What are your lifestyle choices today? Where do you live geographically? What's available to you? And therefore, be very specific individually uh, in terms of what your needs are. What's really important, I think, is we are now seeing unexpectedly the ability to leverage personalized medicine biometrics Mm to the larger audience, you know, which it kind of gets back to the idea of looking at the few to extrapolate to the many. I mean, that's how drug trials work. For example, we know that at most 3% of people are ever sampled and utilized uh, data-wise to make recommendations for the remaining 97% in terms of a drug. And yet now, with uh, this ability to crunch this data and move forward, I think we're going to really understand the larger, the bigger strokes that uh, you know, frankly, we know that not everybody today and certainly moving forward is going to be available to uh, participate in specific personalized medicine. But I think we're going to learn what really has traction uh, with respect to the broad strokes. Mm. And what do you think people should be tracking now? Like what's a meaningful, should I be wearing an aura ring or a constant glucose monitor? Like what are, what are the data points now that, that you collect or that you recommend that people collect? Well, it's a good question because, you know, as you well know, there are so, there's such incredible availability right now to look at changes in your microbiome on almost a daily basis, for example. Uh, certainly your genome is a great place to start. That doesn't change or does it. Uh, we, in reality, we know that our day-to-day lifestyle choices are hugely influential on the expression of your uh, life code that we thought was really locked up in a glass mm-hmm. case and we now recognize absolutely Uh, is not. So I think that uh, to start with, we should all understand our genomes, whether it's 23andMe or any other uh, service that's out there. It's not just getting your genome sequence, but then manipulating that data to understand what your current needs are before you even begin tracking as you move forward. How do we manipulate it? I've actually well, there, never heard somebody say that before. Yeah, there are several online sites that are available to upload your 23andMe data. You just mm. drag uh, the file and drop it into various sites. Uh, Dr. Ben Lynch, author of a book called Dirty Genes, has a terrific site. 
Uh, and from that, you learn uh, not just what your genome says, but more importantly, what does it mean? Mm. Uh, I learned some things about myself that I never knew that did change uh, my lifestyle choices to some small degree. One thing I learned is that I, Tom, am a poor methylator. What does it mean? It means that I have not the most favorable genes in a pathway called MTHFR, along with about 20 to 22% of Americans. People need to know that. When, what, what's the impact of that? Like if you were not to address it, right. the outcome would so be? So one of the most common things that we see with people who are poor methylators is, uh, uh, for example, that my homocysteine level can go up. And why is that an issue? Well, homocysteine is a powerful risk factor for Alzheimer's. So it really takes us away from the notion of Alzheimer's being a genetic issue, either you have the Alzheimer's gene or you don't, to uh, Alzheimer's being related to modifiable lifestyle factors. Now, other things that are important I think people should be following. Their homocysteine level, as mentioned, vitamin D level, I think mm -hmm. knowing uh, your fasting glucose level on a pretty regular basis, whether you have an onboard uh, glucometer or not, I think, to me, uh, I, I find that to be a little bit of an overkill. I think you can get a good sense if you measure blood sugar maybe once or twice a week uh, with a finger stick. I think you should know your ketone levels, uh, your hemoglobin A1C, or so-called average blood sugar, I think is hugely important. What do you think is a good number there? Well. I've learned in the few years that I've been at this that, um, you know, I'm the kind of guy, and I, I, I think you probably are too, uh, who says, well, some is good, more is better. But in terms of medicine, uh, it's not always the case that a lower insulin level, a lower a hemoglobin A1C or a lower blood sugar is necessarily better for you. I mean, I, five years ago, popularized the idea that we really have to get our insulin levels low. Because it would be, A, an indication that we were eating less carbs, having less blood sugar elevations, uh, and B, uh, it would uh, ultimately help restrict our risk for developing insulin resistance. Mm. Uh, and now we see publications that at the very lowest ranges of insulin, there is actually, at least in women, an increased risk, risk a profoundly increased risk of becoming demented. Uh, and... Is it the same risk? So they see it on the low end. Do they see that same risk then on the high end? Well, the, the risk on the low end, and again, this is just in women, but that's very important since, you know, two out of every three Alzheimer's patients is, uh, are women. Uh, but it's important uh, that at the lowest uh, range, uh, the risk was increased about 2.38x. At the high range, it was increased about 1.7x. So they're actually worse off if they're too really, low. Really, really low. Interesting. How would you depress your insulin that low? Well, I think this gets to the point of uh, gene expression. I think people have certain what we call polymorphisms of genes that might not code for adequate uh, insulin activity. Uh, so a plus being, of course, on an extremely low sugar, low carbohydrate diet. So it gets to, again, back to, dare I say, the sweet spot. It's a terrible misnomer, I think, mm. uh, as it relates to blood sugar <laughs> and, and our diets. We shouldn't opt for the sweet spot. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's relevant for us to understand in the context of this discussion that as we get together and talk about this, 2018, we have no treatment uh, for Alzheimer's. Mm. None. Nothing works. Nothing reduces 
the, uh, the rate at which people decline. And to me, it's very compelling that last month, the Journal of the American Medical Association put out a study by Dr. Richard Kennedy, uh, which was actually a, a meta-analysis of some of the, the top 10 best uh, evaluations of the efficacy of so-called Alzheimer's drugs. Though there is no drug that works, yet Alzheimer's drugs uh, you know, are selling at the rate of close to a billion dollars in our country annually. We've known that they don't work, but what was published last month was really quite compelling by the Journal of the American Medical Association. Not only do the drugs not work, but they speed the cognitive decline of patients who are taking them. What are they attacking? What's the, the notion behind the drug must be something that it, what, lowers Well, there are two drugs that they looked at. Or? None of the drugs are involved in, in dealing with beta amyloid. Uh, the first class of drugs representing the lion's share, about 76%, are what are called cholinesterase inhibitors. And these are drugs like Aricept or Donepezil that inhibit an enzyme that degrades a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, because it was noted decades ago that the Alzheimer's brain is a brain that is low in acetylcholine. And a very simplistic approach would be, hey, we can bump up acetylcholine, that'll be a good thing, and it'll help people. Well, it never has shown any efficacy, and yet it received FDA approval, another story for another time. But now, it's not just that it doesn't work, but it's hastening cognitive decline in the very people who can't afford that. And you think of the families who uh, have dad or mom or husband or wife on these drugs, and they're actually making people worse. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, giving somebody a treatment for their diabetes that is raising their blood sugar. And you bring up the idea of getting rid of plaque. Uh, it's been noted since the, the, uh, the naming of Alzheimer's disease after uh, Dr. Alois uh, Alzheimer, who first described the pathology of what this looked like in the brain of a woman dying of that disease that now bears his name. And the plaques were noted then, and since that time, scientists and clinicians alike have really focused on the plaque as being the thing we've got to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that uh, researchers like Dr. Rudolf Tanzi at Harvard have made it very clear that the plaque is the response to the problem, not the cause of the problem. Uh, the plaque is what we call an antimicrobial peptide, and it's the brain's way of responding to perhaps infectious agents like herpes simplex virus or chlamydia infection. So, you know, it is said that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We need to embrace beta amyloid as being there for a very important reason. When we rid the brain of beta amyloid, as has been tried in clinical study after clinical trial, patients decline much more quickly. Uh, that might underlie why Pfizer in February of this year said no more. We're just not going to pursue the notion of an Alzheimer's drug anymore. Right. We've got to leave the beta amyloid alone. Uh, there was a move a couple of years ago for the FDA to approve uh, brain scans that would measure the amount of beta amyloid load in a patient as a way of being diagnostic. Do you have Alzheimer's or are you on the way to that? Mm. And they didn't prove it because they realized that people can have a head full of beta amyloid and be cognitively perfectly intact. Hmm. Whereas others with very little beta amyloid actually would demonstrate the clinical manifestations 
of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so looking at, uh, you said that, okay, Pfizer's pulled out, they're no longer making um, Alzheimer's drugs, but the one thing that is recognized to help is exercise. Um, we know that exercise has a sort of what all call a real-time effect on blood sugar. Um, and you're the first person that I've heard anyway talk about the knock-on effect of um, insulin doing more than just shuttling blood sugar out of your cells. What are the, the factors you think that are at play here? And what are the behaviors that we should take to make sure that we stave off dementia as long as humanly possible? What a concept. What a concept that... This disease affecting 5.4 million Americans, 40 million people globally, costing us a trillion dollars, higher than the market values of Apple or Google, uh, predicted to triple by the year 2050, that our lifestyle choices can be leveraged to reduce our risk that will affect 50% of people age 85 or older, the Jesus flip Christ. of a coin. So in that, uh, through that lens, let's go back to where we were, the, the value of exercise. And I'd say uh, your points about insulin sensitivity are well taken. Very important, keeping blood sugar down, uh, enhancing the sensitivity of the insulin receptor. I want to come back to that because I think um, I'm seeing a big elephant in the room that we need to talk about. And that is that physical exercise changes your gene expression. You are able to change the expression of this previously thought to be immutable life code for the better and lead to the expression of what we call a, tro a trophic hormone or growth hormone for the brain, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, there are many things you could do to amp up BDNF. You can use uh, uh, turmeric in your cooking, take a DHA supplement, uh, even uh, CBD has been demonstrated recently to increase uh, BDNF. But the most important thing you need to buy uh, to improve your BDNF is a new pair of running shoes. Because aerobic exercise is able to manipulate the expression of his BDNF. Why Specifically is that? aerobic. Well, to a lesser degree, uh, resistance exercise as well. But I'm simply telling people 20 minutes a day, five days a week, hopefully more, at a heart rate value of 180 minus your age, as a target, of course, consult your healthcare uh, practitioner. But what a powerful way to reduce your risk for dementia. How can I connect those dots and make that statement to you as we sit here? Well, the Journal of the American Medical Association has wonderfully correlated baseline BDNF levels with future risk for dementia. You wanna have more of this chemical that does two important things. It increases the growth of new brain cells in your brain's memory center, which is a powerful target for Alzheimer's. Okay. Um, and it also increases the connection of brain cells one to the other, a process called uh, neuroplasticity, that we can actually allow our brains to take advantage of the experiences that we then choose to pursue to build a better brain. And that is, is the BDNF a building block of that? Or no, it is not. It it's is, a signaling molecule. It is a signaling molecule. I mean, our brain cells want to connect to each other. And our lifestyle choices that are highly stressful, that are deprived of restorative sleep, mm. that are higher in sugar in terms of diet, that are overall stressful, uh, increase cortisol, for example, that inhibits the growth of new brain cells, actually compromises uh, our brain cell population in the very areas that we need them most, like the memory center, the hippocampus. So we can, we can reverse that. 
we can tip the scales in our favor and say, I'm not going to continue losing brain cells. I'm actually going to repopulate my memory center with new brain cells. That study was done uh, out here at uh, UCLA in collaboration with researchers at University of Pittsburgh, led by a Dr. Erickson, demonstrating two groups of people, a hundred people in each group. One group stretched for a period of a year. The other group was involved in aerobics. They found that those who stretched had lower levels of BDNF, declining memory function, and shrinkage on very sophisticated brain scans in terms of their hippocampus size, which okay. is the... Let's pause there, because I, I want to walk through this and make sure that I understand. This, this, yeah, this is incredible and potentially very useful, but I want to make sure that I understand the sequence of events. Right. Okay, so first of all, does BDNF trigger the regrowth of brain cells across the brain or no, just the hippocampus? No. Good point. We used to say the brain doesn't grow new brain cells. End of story, right? Mm. I mean... Uh, you're probably too young to know that. No, no, but no, that's what I was taught. When I was in medical school, percent. we were told that um, your brain grow, maxes out at about age 18, and every beer you drink after yep. that, it's 40,000 brain cells or whatever the magic number was. For whatever reason, I don't remember that. But um, how incredible that uh, in your 90s, you were still growing new brain cells. You have this gift of regrowth, of neurogenesis. It's a choice you can make. You can make it today after watching this podcast by dragging those sneakers out. And uh, if only going to the mailbox is as far as you can go, then have at it. Tomorrow you'll do that twice. And the sequence is you're doing the exercise. The exercise is creating BDNF. BDNF is then triggering hippocampal cell growth? Hippocampal, or? yes. But beyond that, another area too called the subventricular layer of the what's called the appendema. In, uh, the layer of cells that underlies those fluid-filled compartments that you see when you look at a brain scan. But for our purposes, the uh, synaptoplasticity and the neuroplasticity, the connection of brain cells happens throughout the brain. Um, we also depend on a process called synaptic pruning. What does that mean? Uh, it means that also for brain function, we have to have the ability... Uh, as we are in our uh, childhood and adolescence, to cut back on the number of connections that we have uh, in order to kind of refine the, the computer to make it work at its optimal level. So, Which that, it's doing, I'm assuming, based on repetition. What you do the most is going to get the most connections. Right. It's going to get the, most, the highest degree of insulation. Exactly. All of that. Neurons that fire together will wire together. And those that don't will atrophy, will fall off the, uh, the tree. And so you're saying that um, that process, the firing together and wiring together, is um, one repetition. Two, you get the BDNF if you're exercising that washes the brain in some way, signals to them, hey, to in some way that makes them more active, more likely to connect. So what is the advantage then, the um, evolutionarily coded or selected advantage that exercising people should have higher levels of BDNF and ultimately, let's just say, be more uh, able to survive and cognitively uh, superior in evolutionary terms. Right. And I guess it's the people who were healthy enough to hunt and gather and to lead uh, you know, the expeditions in our Paleolithic times. Uh, so these individuals, and I've never thought this before, I just was... Uh, having a bit of a free association while you're talking. These are our ancestors, and uh, evolutionarily, they were selected because they were leading the group. So uh, uh, we can play upon that now that we understand that.
Oh, Biotech which companies is doing, have been trying for decades now to figure out how to inject the stem most cells. Well, Mother connections. Nature's already beaten them to it because stem cells are present in our body as a defense. All of that. And we're continuously regenerating we'll ourselves from the inside out repairing problems. You know, there's a road crew inside our body, and so you're saying that right here, right that process, the firing together and wiring together is one repetition. Two, you get the BDNF if you're exercising that washes the brain in some way, signals to them, hey, to in some way that makes them more active, more likely to connect. So what is the advantage then, the um, evolutionarily coded or selected advantage that exercising people should have higher levels of BDNF and ultimately, let's just say, be more uh, co- able to survive and cognitively uh, superior in evolutionary terms? Right. And I guess it's the people who were healthy enough to hunt and gather and to lead, uh, you know, the expeditions in our Paleolithic times. Uh, so these individuals, and I've never thought this before, I just was uh, having a bit of a free association while you're talking. These are our ancestors, and uh, evolutionarily they were selected because they were leading the group. So... Uh, uh, we can play upon that now that we understand that. 